All right, let's get started this morning. Psalm 23, Psalm 23, as you find your place. Just for the record, in Sunday school and in the morning service, we never start late, all right? If you're looking at the clock and wondering if we're starting, you're missing out on the first part of the gathering, the fellowship time. So I almost hate to interrupt when all those conversations are going on, but we want to put our attention toward Psalm 23 as we think through this Swedish method. You have a form there that helps you think through the process. Our goal is to equip you with some thinking tools so that... When you finish reading the Bible, whatever that assigned reading is, you have something to engage with. Roy? I was just going to ask, um, okay, this is a dumb question, but I'm full of them. These little icons, where are they supposed to go? Are you drawing them in your Bible? Uh, I think they just, I would say they can just go in your head, yeah. <laughs> um, just so you have those tools for how to think. Now, I, I used to write draw them, you know, I, I typically would print out a passage so I could really mark it up. I don't need light bulbs and arrows in every passage of the, my Bible text. Um, so it's more of a guide. I, I've seen people, you know, photocopy them or draw out their own and put it in the front of like a little spiral notebook, and then they just have all the blank pages, but they can always look back to the first page and uh, until they get it in their heads. And then after a while, surely you can remember four or five symbols there. So uh, again, it's, uh, it's the idea that you would get more familiar with the tools. Um, I'm not a, like a car guy, so I don't work on engines, but people that would, you know, get real familiar with tools and what's going on and how to use them. And so that's what we're trying to do here, get you used to something so that you never feel awkward in approaching the Bible uh, or reading it. Um, you never feel awkward in discussions, small group, uh, family gathering, uh, Sunday school class, any discussion where somebody reads something and says, what do you think? It's, you're right away defaulting to your tools. This is one set of tools. There are, there are others. And so uh, I would encourage you to use this season of Advent uh, which kind of sets the table for our lives of worship and our resolving of what we can do better in the coming year. Uh, use this month to think through, okay, where am I going to be reading when the new year starts? And how am I going to be reading? Am I going to be doing writing? Or am I just going to be thinking through some of these things? Um, that way, the passion that you may feel at that new year, to resolve to do better at getting into the Word, um, now has a foundation to build on. Uh, don't let that passion, that zeal be deflated by, in a sense, an ignorance, uh, a planned ignorance, because you didn't plan to not be ignorant about where you wanted to study or how you were going to do that. The where you read becomes less important when you have a confidence of knowing how. Because uh, then you're just not intimidated by Leviticus or, you know, Second Chronicles or Revelation. Uh, you're just going to use the tools and dive in about anywhere. Now, I wouldn't suggest randomly, day by day, just diving in anywhere. Um, but I would suggest that it's not too much of a problem to randomly pick a place, pick a book of the Bible and start going through it. Uh, they're all good. So... Uh, dive in and see what you find. Now, on your handout, you see at the top there, it's not just heading-type information. I would suggest that as you approach the Word, that you begin with prayer. Uh, there's some more back on the stand back there, if you've come in and didn't grab one of those. Um, one of the prayers in Psalm 119 is, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your law. And we know by law, this is representing God's revelation to us. So his statutes, his law, his, what else is in there? Precepts, 
his commandments, uh, all those words in Psalm 119 uh, that remind us God has revealed his truth. And we know it's for us to understand, and yet the psalmist is praying that his eyes would be open to see the wonder of it, to, to not just see the words and their, their meaning, but to feel the heart of God behind this. Why has God communicated this to us? And it's there, as we studied in Deuteronomy, uh, it's for our good, uh, and it's for our children uh, to know these truths. So pray as you begin reading the Bible. Um, you may not be used to that. You may think, well, I pray at the end or something. Well, I'm not saying pray for people or for, you know, circumstantial needs. I'm saying pray for help to understand the word. It's not always easy, uh, especially if you've gotten into Bible reading before and have failed in the sense of it fizzled out somewhere, then you understand the need to pray. You're longing for this to be profitable. Uh, and then have your plan for where you're going to read. Today we're going to look at Psalm 23, which is uh, what I would call low-hanging fruit in the Swedish method. It's just not hard to find uh, something here. And then, uh, here's a key word, think, think. Paul, writing to the church of Philippi, gives us that list, whatever is true, whatever is honest, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. Think on these things. Uh, not just read them, uh, but to think on them. Uh, John Piper has a book called Think. Um, and if you've ever listened to him or followed him as he marks up the text and does all that stuff, uh, you realize, okay, however much you agree or disagree, you would better bring your thinking cap if you're going to you know, find your way and follow along. Uh, a whole, well, it's a short book, probably 150 pages on thinking Biblically, uh, that's not something we like to do. We, we like things quick and easy. Um, stereotypically, this would be the, the benefit of social media. Uh, you don't have to shape ideas in paragraphs that make, you know, an hour-long speech like you may have listened to when Ronald Reagan was president or something. Um, now everything is 140 characters or less and... You know, spit it out there and it stands. Well, we need to, as Christians, be people who think especially about these things that are true and right. Um, and then if you're helped by writing, I would encourage you to fill in blanks, get a notebook, grab scrap paper, even if you don't keep it. Uh, some people love to save their writings and thoughts. Um, you might just write it down that day, answer some things, and the fact of writing helps it stick in your mind a little, and you can throw it away. That, that's fine. Uh, you don't need to have any kind of set system here, but praying, reading, thinking, and writing, all these are good exercises of spiritual discipline. And if, if you have a track record of up and down in Bible reading, devotional time, whatever we call this, then I would say rather than saying, well, I don't know if I want to do that, I would say... <laughs> I, I would grab up everything you can get in order to help structure this and then just let that be your master for a little bit until you get good at doing something on your own. Uh, I remember when I was playing the trombone in high school and taking lessons, my teacher had this sign on the door, if you want to be a master of your instrument, you must first be its slave. Uh, so... If you want to be a master of thinking your way through the word, then you, you're going to have to be a slave to something that demands discipline from you. And ideally, we're talking about the self-control that the spirit manifests in us. But a lot of times we're helped by things like an alarm clock that disciplines us to wake up at, a, at the right time, uh, a calendar, a to-do list that disciplines us to get things done. It's not that you would never get anything done without it, but it structures it for you. It makes it easier. Um, and so if this simple little outline helps make it easier, then by all means, try this. But don't say, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to work for me if, if your track record is poor. Um, you're not in a good position to be arguing against structures that may help you. All right? So be encouraged. Be exhorted. Uh, Use this month to prepare yourself for an, uh, a disciplined approach to being a student of the Bible in both the reading of it and your thinking through it. 
But let's read through Psalm 23. It'll be familiar, and so because it's familiar, maybe you can be a little more engaged in thinking about something to see, something to ask, something to do, somewhere to look. And then those last two are a little bit more for uh, your quiet time, but we could talk about how even to structure something to pray, uh, and then, of course, someone to tell. Psalm 23. Yeah. Would you mind, the previous uh, Sunday I've been here, uh, I don't know if I just didn't ever get one of these, but to implement, and uh, I don't know if it would be too much work to actually like print one of these out each Sunday school, maybe? Because it would help me. Oh, sure. No, we can, we can put a pile of them back there and send you home with an old notebook of them. Be glad to. Psalm 23. Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All right, you come to the end of your reading. You read that on your own. Maybe it was on your phone because you had a few minutes at your office before you had to get into the day. Maybe you had a quiet moment. The kids are doing something else or they went off to school. And now you read your reading of the day. It was Psalm 23. You were glad to see that on the list because it's familiar. You like the passage. And now you're to think your way through this in order to find something here that kind of rests in your mind or your heart. Uh, Remember, the psalmist said, your word I've hid in my heart. Well, that, that's a mind thing, all right? Um, that's an exercise of the mind, to value it, to take it in, to want to find a place to keep that, to implement it into the way that we're living. So that's what we're trying to do with these questions. Um, you, you can go anywhere you want. Let's, it's six verses. You can start in verse one or anywhere else. Um, but kind of point us to something and then... He restores my soul. He restores my soul. All right. Any thoughts on it? Any reason that resonates or does that just stand out to you? That, uh, I mean, just... Sorry. Personally, with me, it does because I was lost. And without him... (laughs) Setting me down and uh, doing that, and you know, speaking through to individuals to uh, lead me back, my store, my soul wouldn't have been restored, and I still would be lost to this day, unfortunately. Um, but I have been found. All right, so we're we're thinking of restore, in one sense, as its saving effect the restoration of our ruined soul um, and the good shepherd seeking and saving the lost. And so in thinking of even being a sheep of the shepherd, you know, you mentioned, you know, being lost and now found. And so the shepherd leaves the 99 that are in the fold and goes after the one that's lost. So uh, Zachary's thinking even, even salvation experience in coming into this psalm. All right, what else? I lack nothing. How do we make sense of that when so many Christians are suffering such uh, horrible atrocities and privation, starvation? It can't be, you know, I lack an escalate in my driveway. 
Well, that's somewhat silly, but there are people who are lacking basic necessities who are believers. So we have to make sure we understand the, the choice of verbs here. I shall not want. Um, really probably should have been updated in the ESV. That's not standard English for the way we speak. Uh, want has taken on a different meaning than lack in modern English. And so, unfortunately, they don't like tinkering with some of the most beloved passages. And so they, they leave it um, to avoid, you know, taking hits for it. But they, they really probably should have given us lack here or need um, because it reminds us that it, this isn't a free-for-all whatever I want, that want in its original meaning means to lack. I, I'm, in, I'm in trouble here because I don't have enough. Well, what does the first phrase tell us about that second phrase? Or did you have something else, Jane? Well, not wanting or not lacking is not just physical things. It's um, not lacking assurance. We don't, the first time I went under, had surgery, and I had to have anesthetic. I was pretty terrified. And uh, somebody said, just think of a Bible verse. And this is the Bible verse that came to my mind out of the whole Bible. This was the verse. And I realized I want nothing. Mm -hmm. There's nothing I need. God is taking care of it all because he is my shepherd. So we have to let the first phrase inform the second one. Uh, there's commentary there for us. I shall not lack. I, I won't have anything that I need. I'll have enough, but that, that is built on his opening premise, that the Lord is my shepherd. So to Roy's point, if you or any Christian you know around the world is suffering great loss of physical property, finances, health, that doesn't disprove this statement. Um, it actually magnifies it because it's saying it doesn't matter what my physical state is, I have enough if I have Christ and his word is true. Um, this was Paul's point when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, his point was, I can live with this kind of faith. He told us just in the sentences before, I know how to abound, have all the stuff I need, and I know how to be abased. Um, Paul had the rare experience of being a favored son of the church and kind of a church celebrity, but he also knew what it was to come to consciousness on the bottom of a rock pile, having been stoned outside one of the cities for preaching the gospel. Uh, he knew how to suffer and have nothing, and he knew how to have people give gifts and supply all his need. But his point was, in all of that, he has learned to be content. And he can do that through Christ who strengthens him. The strength for that faith comes because he rests in Christ the shepherd. So read these verses not as, oh, as long as we're Christians, we'll have everything that makes us comfortable. No, Read this, as Christians, we may lose everything in this life and still know the deep comfort of, I belong to the good shepherd. And the momentary afflictions, as Paul calls them, of this life aren't worthy to be compared with the joy that I have in knowing Christ. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a radical statement that forces us to reckon with all the degrees of need and wealth. Um, you could be incredibly wealthy and be greatly lacking. Jesus taught us that with the parable of the rich man in his barns. What does it profit the man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? To have no lack of anything, but to actually lack everything, to lose his own soul. The psalmist is saying just the opposite. My soul is secure. I have Christ as my shepherd. I won't lack anything. So, Nail that down in your thinking that this is a, an incredible exercise in faith. Uh, ask yourself the question when life is hard and you're getting run down and frustrated and start rattling off all the needs that you have. 
do I really believe the Lord is my shepherd and that is enough? Or do I say, I'd be happy in the Christian life, you know, if this was better, or if my kids were this, or if my job did this, or if my church was more. Uh, We're not supposed to be filling in the blanks with if all this was right, then I'd be happy. All right, so that's that's a big introduction thought, and there may be more there you want to share, but what else do we have here? Yeah, Daniel. Um, so it says in verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which is, uh, looks like the, the most extreme example of, so therefore, the next statement, he says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. That's not just in death, that's, that's the entirety of existence. Yeah, we'd rather kind of camp out in verses 2 and 3. You know, green pastures, still waters. Then we get to the even though. Because if we read just in order, the Lord's my shepherd, I don't lack anything. He leads me beside these still waters and this lush, verdant, green valley. You know, this is beautiful. In our minds, we might be anticipating verse 4. Now, we know the psalm, we've read it before, so we don't really anticipate much. But if you just start fresh and you're reading through that, you'd be thinking, okay, but what, what if life isn't like that? What if it isn't all green pastures? Um, and the psalmist immediately turns there, even though I walk through the valley, that shadow of death, um, that faith is still the same. You won't fear evil. Uh, and has his reasons for it. All right, what else? Yeah, David, back there. Um, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Um, just the thought of, you know, the, the shepherd's crook being used to correct and rescue sheep if they make missteps, but also to protect against foes. There's no hardness in his dealing towards us. It's very gentle with us and very strong and, and protective against our foes. Yeah, so the rod and staff. Um, that makes us think because that that's not common like English American life. We don't do rods and staffs unless you're in the homeschool curriculum. Uh, <laughs> huh. Well, if you were a naughty child, maybe you're familiar with rods and staves. <laughs> but we're not, we're not much into that exercise of, you know, big sticks and all. So we, we have to think through this a little. Roy? Uh, when I was a kid, I always wondered why a shepherd would be carrying two sticks, a rod and a staff. But it's the same stick, right? I think it's it depends on what you use it for, whether it's a rod or a stick. Yeah, I, I've never, I've never thought of them as one or two. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, just jumping back to "I shall not want," I was just had a thought about. So, like, <clears throat> thinking about the balance of our actual human nature. Um, say, say Paul's in prison. Uh, he he doesn't want to be in prison. Like he, he, if he's if he's not going to lie to himself, like he, he wants to be comfortable as a human, natural person. So is the balance there? Just knowing in the back of your mind that you you really there's a bedrock that we all have because of the sweetness of life we've been given through Jesus, or do we recognize that like we're going to want, or our our flesh will want, no matter how hard you try not to yet still have that thought that, that there is that bedrock or is the goal to just strip everything down and literally not want. Um, kind of a nuanced thing there. I, I didn't know what the balance and, and thoughts were behind how far that should go, I guess. Yeah, I don't think like success in the Christian life is somehow not being bothered by brokenness, poverty, you know, affliction. You know, I don't think the, the instruction is 
well, you should just like this. Like, you should be okay with this. Um, I think that's why Paul calls it affliction. Like, now, he's putting it in perspective. It's momentary compared to heaven and, and the kingdom he was serving and all. Um, and the other long passage, maybe in 2 Corinthians, where it's like, you know, I'm distressed but not broken. You know, he kind of has all these contrasts. This is really bad, but... Basically, he sums it up as the inner man is being renewed day by day, even though the outward man is perishing. So I, I think that is the struggle. It's like we're, we're hit by stuff. We don't like it. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. And that feeling, that human side, it's not going to change. You're not going to just tell yourself, well, you should just like this or be comfortable. No, like when he's shipwrecked and floating in the, ocean, freezing cold or something, he doesn't have to say, I feel warm. No, he's cold and miserable. But the reality is that pales in comparison to this faith he has that God is doing for me what God thinks is best, and I have to trust him. So it's, it's almost like I just realize my likes and dislikes in this life are never going to be fully satisfied. That's the nature of not living in Eden like the way God intended it. Yeah, in the, in the sense of wanting, yes, we would want to be healthy and not suffering through chemotherapy or something. You know, you'd want that. And that, that's not a bad thing. That's recognizing what heaven will be. Um, and it's not here. I was going to say, I think what Roy was pointing out there, <clears throat> excuse me, what Roy was pointing out there with I shall not want, that's probably not the best translation that the idea of I shall not lack or suffer need, but uh, this fits right in with what you were talking about, Brooks, and then also kind of what I've been thinking about is the the sheepiness of this passage, that like, if you have an anthropomorphism, this is a sheepomorphism, <laughs> where David's imagining himself as a sheep here, where God is a shepherd, but David, being a shepherd, is very aware of what it means to be a sheep, that a sheep does have needs Sheep are unruly, sheep have different threats to them, sheep have different struggles and whatnot. Um, so yeah, for the first several verses, one through four there, that he's, he's very much in the, <laughs> the sheepy side of things. Um, but I do think it's helpful, Brooks, like you were saying, that like, I shall not want, it's like, okay, so I just gotta battle the want, versus like, I shall not lack, like it's a different expression, it's like, okay, I can trust God to provide. God provides for his beloved in their sleep, or God provides sleep to his beloved, or God provides to his beloved while they sleep elsewhere in the Psalms. Um, That's just kind of a different expression, and it turns the object of faith not so much in suppressing even my awareness of my own need, but the flip it around the other way, but a confidence in God that he would supply my needs. Uh, and I wonder if it's also like a more fully expounded in the New Testament when it talks about uh, the battle between the flesh and the soul. You know, it, it, it's it's there's an opposite there. Um, I don't know if that has anything to tie in that that passage, but it kind of seems like that that would also be. Good. I think so because it's 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 an it's a battle of faith. You know, it's what Job went through. He's, he's living all the miserable stuff and wouldn't have chosen that and definitely wouldn't want that. He wants something different, and yet his faith prevails. That's that patience of Job. So it might be helpful to take the, the negative form of the second half and, and make it a positive. So the Lord is my shepherd. I have all I need. I have enough because of the Lord being my shepherd. So it it. it just keep them connected so that in any conversation about lack or want, it's connected to the shepherd. I have Christ as my shepherd, so that therefore is telling me I have enough or I won't lack anything, the negative or the positive. And I think that's in the verse where it says, for you are with me. And I think that's the comfort regardless of of how uncomfortable the situation is or undesirable the situation. Oh, 
is that God's almighty presence is with those who are his own. So marking that phrase, you are with me, in verse 4, as kind of an echo of verse 1, here, here's why, you know, lying down in green pastures works, and here's why still waters works, and here's why even the valley of the shadow of death works still. Um, and I'm not overrun by fear. It's because you are with me. We have that promise of the eternal being with the future. Certainly. And notice that the rod and staff follows the phrase, you are with me. So that, that makes us realize whatever we know of rods and staffs, and, and David gave us a few ideas, you know, the, the rescuing, the, the steering, the protecting them from other things, that rod and that staff become an extension of the arms of the shepherd. Um, so link that too to you are with me, your rod and staff comfort me. It's not, oh, that's great the shepherd's here, but I'm really glad that staff is here. No, it, that's one and the same. That's an extension of him. So we see protection and guidance and authority and power and, and right, lordship um, in rod and staff. Those are longer arms of the shepherd himself. They help the shepherd do what he wants to do. All right, Roy? I wonder if, if uh, the Lord's my shepherd. He is all that I need. I, I suffer lacks in different areas. There are things that biblically should be there and bring joy, but their lack pushes me back to a greater sufficiency, which is Jesus which is the joy of his fellowship and of his presence. And if I had those other things that I look at as lacking, I would not be pushed to Jesus for that joy, which is the only joy that lasts, and it is the eternal joy of the new experience. Right. Verse 1 is all about the sufficiency of that premise that the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, is that a good thing? And the more good we see in that, the more the second part makes sense. Because somebody could try to argue with you and say, well, I still lack a lot in my sanctification, and I still lack a lot of things, but I have the Lord as my shepherd. And we're like, okay, but this isn't about you. We're not measuring your sanctification. What we're saying here is Christ is enough, and you do need more of him. So whatever you think is deficient in you is going to be met in him. Um, and this is a process in this lifetime that culminates with Christ's return, and when he appears, we'll be like him, and Philippians 1.6 will be completed then. He who began this good work will complete it in that day of Jesus Christ. Um, until then, it's by faith that we keep saying, every deficiency I see is going to be met by looking to Christ and seeing him. So... Verse 1 is going to keep dominating uh, through this psalm. But what else? What else do we see here? Aaron. So verses 4 and 5 have always been a little perplexing to me. And they're in the chapter, so they're tied in somehow. I just don't really quite think how they make sense. But for verse 4, I will fear no evil, or I will not be afraid. Um, I mean, I say even for people who say they do not fear much there's a form of evil that terrorizes everyone so when faced with that I would I mean I would think I'd say we wouldn't really be afraid so I don't know if it's just a misunderstanding or it does tie into the first verse somehow but I just don't really get how it definitely ties into the first verse um the Lord's my shepherd, we're, we're in a good place. Um, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, I will feel no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. Um, some, of the, some of the trouble in the language of fear is we, we recognize, much like Brooks was saying regarding just our natural rejection of bad stuff that we know is the result of sin, 
um, that's kind of a natural response. And so when the Bible says, you know, I will fear no evil, I, I don't think this is necessarily saying we won't have anything in us that is a reaction that is what we would call fear or like literally causes our bodies to react in ways like, all right, something bad is happening, you know, you need to do something, fight or flight. I think this is constantly reminding us of what faith does in us in those moments when we could be overwhelmed by fear. Uh, so much like, you know, Joshua chapter 1, and Joshua was being commissioned to finally get these people into the promised land, and he's told over and over again, you know, don't be afraid, be of good courage. And, it, and it's like, how do you just not be afraid? Like, how can you tell your kid, don't be afraid of the dark? Well, it, it's going to be this natural response to that unknown. Um, so what you're really telling them is to, you know, take heart or be courageous in the face of that fear. Um, you know, this is what soldiers are trained to do. It's, it's not that the things that they're going to face aren't debilitating to even the, the mind and the bodily response, so they train to be ready to act rightly in those moments when absolute chaos and terror breaks out. So when we hear the command, don't be afraid, it, it's almost like we have to be thinking, have faith. You know, be courageous in that moment when fear is rising and you either give yourself to fear and think, there's no way this is going to work, this is terrible, I'm in trouble, or you think, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm not going to be afraid because he's with me. He's working his plan. And that's the point of this odd scenario in verse 5 that you're talking about, this table spread in the presence of the enemies. It's as if a, the choice was, no, I'm going to sit down at Thanksgiving meal in, in just rest and peace and enjoy this because I know this is exactly what God is, is doing in my life. Even though it's in the presence of my enemies and life's chaotic, I'm going to have faith. So I think you've hit on a, on a really significant matter of understanding, especially commands not to be afraid um, because in our minds we think, how do you not be afraid? Like it's the, it's the response how do you not be disinclined to liking you know, bad things? Well, it's just the natural response. But we're looking now for the what we might call supernatural response, the work of the Spirit in us that reminds us, wait a minute, even in the presence of my enemies, I can be at peace knowing that, as Paul said, whether in life or death, my purpose is to glorify God. And if this is what he has me doing, then... I'm going to sit down and prop my feet up and enjoy this, you know, meal, uh, even though it's in the presence of chaos. So think through that some, and especially as you come across these other passages that talk about not being afraid, uh, link it to faith right away, and it, and it might make a little more sense because now it's, it's not telling you, you need to be something better. You need to be a stronger person. Why are you afraid? It's, no, you need to lean on a stronger person, uh, which will enable you not to respond in fearful crumbling, but rather a courageous stand. A um, lot there. Any thoughts on that or anything else? Yeah, Daniel and then Paul. Brooks. So, and again, I, I kind of wrote down like four or five different avenues that you could go down with that setting a table in the presence of my enemies. Does that mean that I don't have any fear of sitting in the presence of my enemies? Does that mean that they would become in fellowship with me because now we're breaking bread? I mean, that seems like kind of an undertone of this whole thing. Um, because my enemies are insignificant, so sitting at a table with them wouldn't bother me, uh, sitting in their presence. So I think I have more questions about this than I have answers. So I don't know what to do with this. Yeah, that's a great one to write down. That's like question to ask and then you just let it sit there and, and as you read more of David's Psalms especially you might hear other phrases you know that remind you like oh maybe this is something he meant like 
a refuge in the storm or the mountains are falling into the sea and yet he's secure, you know, Luther's Psalm 46. That's bizarre. Like, that kind of feels like a table spread in the presence of, you know. So just keep adding to it and see how the Lord illuminates it. Well, and and one thing that I did come to was uh, over the last two years, I've lost a lot of my fear talking about God and being assertive about it. And what I've noticed is I can sit with people that I, I know are hostile to God and I still have full confidence and peace in that moment. That was the only thing that I could really kind of hitch on to and hold on to. The rest of it is interesting, though. I think yeah. it's Paul, you had something else? Yeah, well, with Aaron, your question, that was a good one. Um, And what came to mind was just thinking about Job. um, And chapter 1 there, verse 20 through 22, where uh, great wind has come. Basically, he's he's reaping all the bad news here. And his reaction, and one, I just have to imagine that we're not really given a lot of insight into, was he experiencing fear? Um, but I think that there has to be at least some level of fear going on, uh, assuming that he would react similarly to me anyway. That then we also see that he arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground. Um, like those are some pretty extreme reactions. And then, but we're told that he worshipped. He said, "Naked I came from my mother's womb; naked shall I return." The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And kind of a parallelism there in a sense of like, what does it mean to not be afraid? I imagine, well, and we're later told throughout the book of Job that he is shaken to his core here. But there's also a belief, a confidence in God that even as God is taking things away, that he's still blessing God's name in the midst of it. Um, I think it just even as we look at like, that I will not be afraid is not necessarily, like you were saying, Adam, that I'm not shaking in my boots, but rather that there's a confidence that God is in control of all of this. And I have a greater overarching confidence that rules the day, even as I may be afraid or intimidated or Daniel, like you were saying, talking with coworkers who might be hostile to God. It's not that I'm not like, ugh. I do not like this or whatever, but that God ultimately gives us confidence that we can still operate in the midst of that and bless him and worship him. I also have a thought on that. Um, Just talking about what Daniel said as well. Like if you take it to its most extreme level, you can think about Stephen being martyred and maybe having some sort of um, peace within his soul as that's even happening yet being destroyed physically on the outside. And so, you know, in that instance, I suppose like his soul didn't fear any evil because he knew he'd be, he, who he belonged to. But if I'm in that scenario and I'm unsettled with my soul, I'm getting stoned, does that mean I, I'm not saved? Or does that, is it, is it that total level of security that you have to have? Or could you still even be like, man, I'm, I'm still kind of scared, you know? Um, I don't know, just a thought on that too. I just think that's, that's levels of growth and maturity. You know, I don't know that every saint that has been martyred had the same level of peace or confidence, you know, in their decision to, you know, stand for Christ or... I don't know that we can know that. I think we just know, we keep coming back to the Lord is my shepherd and I have to keep striving for faith to keep seeing that. He is enough. Um, and there's just, there's sufficient grace in our weakness, you know, Paul talks about in Second Corinthians that we don't have right now because we're not in that moment of that weakness where we need that extra measure of grace, you know, you talk to somebody going through their cancer or something, and they're like, you know, oh, God's been good. And you're, and you're looking at them thinking, how are you doing that? Uh, well, it's because you don't know the grace that comes in that kind of weakness. And you will, should God ask you to, to go through the valley. So, yeah, I think you're, you're good at thinking of the nuance of those moments. And it, we don't have all the answers for all the specifics, just... Keep striving for that faith. Re? 
and then Dave. I think uh, um, that missionary that you had here sometime last year from the seven, the ones that were Right. Words about that they are that we are always insiders, no matter where we are, who we're surrounded by, or whatever. Our obstacles are that our our faith has made us always an insider, and you know they have they have a certain level of fear too, because they have a very low profile and kind of fly under the radar in certain situations and things like that. That they, that they don't have, I guess, a fear that even others would have of living in either part of with a bunch of those folks. Right. So to think of missionaries living in countries where there are serious risks and um, dangers, um, spirituality doesn't mean you're not aware of those dangers and, and very much on edge at times. It just means you have faith that God has called you here, and come what may, he will be enough. Um, so it, it keeps coming back to that. I, I think that's why even like this language here, I will fear no evil. It, it's recognizing a choice to be made. There are circumstances which are alarming or even painful in, in a variety of ways. My response will either be continue to be afraid and let them crush and debilitate, or it will be the courage to press on, knowing God has called me to this and his grace is sufficient. All right, any last thought? And we got a, yeah, Dave and then Zachary. Yeah, I just think of the verbiage in uh, verse four is interesting, right? It's not even though I may walk through the valley, I will walk through the valley. Like, so it, it's where your expectations are, right? So if your expectation is nothing bad, nothing bad is going to happen, you have the wrong expectation. Right. We don't live in that world. Uh, and so, but, you know, the next part is with the overfill of evil and talks about the rod and the staff, you know. We know, since we know what the end state is and we have confidence in that, we have this assurance that God is going to be there with us as we're on this journey. Um, and then, you know, a lot of times I think it's easy to put that sort of section break in there because it's, it's in there in the Bible normally, but it really does flow into the next part, right? It's how does God comfort me? It's not just the rat and the staff. He provides for us, right? Even when all the different things in the world are going on, and that's the table in the presence of our enemies, God, God still provides. Uh, and then, you know, it, as you go through there, then, uh, you know, there's a semicolon, so there's more to it, right? He, he provides even to the extent of it overflowing um, and, and that's how much we can rely on him. You know, and then it gets to the very end, and it just reinforces it, right? The, the very last part is, you know, the very last word is forever, right? It's God is going to continue to do all these things forever. We're going to be able to dwell with him forever because he's going to provide for us that much, not just in today's life, but for eternity. And it, it's really, that, I think, you know, when you get to that end, it's, Somewhat climatic in the fact that you go, yeah. I mean, it's not just it's not just the trials of today. I mean, there's so much more, and so it sort of pulls it together into taking it from the small picture where we tend to focus on ourselves to the big picture of what's God's plan right. through all this. And it reminds us that this psalm is given to us to get through now. Um, forever will come, and there's plenty we're told about that, yet right now, we're, we're on the pilgrim journey, and it's not always easy, uh, so we press on. Do you have one last thought, Zachary? I was just saying, uh, when I was uh, spouting on uh, verse 3, that last part of the semicolon, uh, he restoreth my soul. Not only does that validate and kind of um, reiterate the uh, loving kindness 
that he has bestowed upon all of us regardless. But at the end of uh, verse 6 here, not only if this statement doesn't give you any closure, I don't know what will, but I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. So with that being said, whether you walk in the valley of the shadow of death, you know, this, that, this, that, that there, those two things should be the reason why you should not fear no evil ever, regardless of the situation. This is temporary. Um, there's a better life for us after this. And uh, there always will be, because he's always with us. No, that's good. And just note that restore my soul would need some definition from the context. You could look before and see that sometimes it's in the green pastures and still waters. Or you can look after and realize sometimes it's having walked through the valley and having a table spread in the presence of enemies that restores you. So the restoration clearly isn't circumstantial as much as it is, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. There is the restoration. So your life may not get any better this week than it was last week, even though you're longing for that, as Brooks brought up to us. You, you don't want the bad stuff, but the reality is this text is offering us the hope of restoration, contentment, the joy that comes from faith, uh, and knowing that even if life is hard, goodness and mercy are hounding us like sheepdogs, uh, all the way down this pilgrim journey. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, these loved verses, well known and yet fresh for us today to think on uh, your truth to us. These things are true and good and lovely, and so may they fill our minds. And even this week, uh, in some moment of discontent or weak faith, would you, by your Spirit, convict us with these gentle words of your lordship shepherding in our lives uh, and remind us that all is well uh, because of who you are for us. And so we give you thanks for the help that your word gives us and for our Savior, Shepherd Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.